Striking while the iron's hot to be your authoritative voice for New Mexico soccer. Welcome to We Are Seek and Strike podcast. Sponsored by Roughneck Scarves and Icarus FC. Brought to you by Beautiful Game Network. Find us on the web at seekandstrikecollective.com. Welcome back. My name is Chris Walker, and with me is Veronica Zavala. And this is the weekly edition of We Are Seek and Strike podcast. On this episode, we'll talk about our reactions of USL's Cup Final, uh, thoughts on Pro-Rel calendar change from USL, as we've heard a little bit about that rumbling uh, through the the match um, in Tampa Bay. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about Super League, W League news, and then we'll crack into NMU or New Mexico United adjacent uh, information that you're here for. We'll talk about the Academy, the Academy playoffs, talk about the latest signing for New Mexico United, as well as we will get into the latest roster moves and we'll have a guest. uh, John Morrissey of USL Tactics will join us in the latter half of this podcast. But first, Veronica, tell our listeners about the latest contest. Three years down, we are Seek and Strike podcast. The podcast started out in Chris's living room, Anna's, and has been everywhere from car dealerships to conference rooms to press boxes at rival stadiums to the salt yard and back to the living room again, right where it started. Um, Three years ago, we self-titled the show. We knew that we are Seek and Strike above all else and that we develop our own brand and coverage style. As the chapter started and end, we're looking to move away from the self-titled name and rebrand the weekly show. So we'd like your help with that. We're looking for something that is more relative to New Mexico or New Mexico United. We know you support the club and you also have your own ideas. So please help us name this weekly show. The top, top five submissions will receive a price and the overall winner, if one is selected, will receive something grand from us. This could include being a guest co-host on the podcast and as we unveil the new weekly show name. Um, you can submit your entries to the Twitter DM, the Instagram DM, or to us directly at Collective at gmail.com. There is limit to entries, but we will read the best five out of out on the podcast and we will pick a winner by January 1st. Right on. Thank you. And uh, let's uh, get into this. So that was some USL final. Uh, Tampa Bay Rowdies and Orange County, uh, Orange County SC, rather, soccer club. Um, They obviously got together. They played the USL Cup. There was actually a championship this year. You know, last year, obviously, we know Phoenix Rising and Tampa Bay Rowdies were supposed to play. And of course, due to COVID, um, protocols being um, breached, if you will, then there was no match. So here we were with this match. So, Veronica, you watched the championship match between both the Rowdies and Orange County. What were your like? What was your like initial reactions to this match? Kind of, what did you think going into it? Did you think that that Orange County was a lock for the win, the way they won, or did you did you have a different sort of 
um, thought about the match? You know, um, it's like the this season was kind of like everybody that you assumed would be winning didn't win, and the and the teams that you assumed um, would not maybe be making it to the top actually made it to the top. Um, I actually was pretty confident that Orange County was going to take um, take the win on this one. Really, um, just based on watching their last three <laughs> their last three matches. Um, I really felt that they had, you know, put all that they had into um, into getting that that win. So I kind of um, went in confident that that they were, and lo and behold, they did. Now, is that because you're from Orange County that you just kind of have this sort of this sort of thing? You're like, hey, I'm from Orange County. Orange County is going to win. Is that that sort of uh, sort of city pride or? You know, I'm, I'm going to say a little bit of that did kick in because I was like, if if one of these teams is going to win, um, you know, United was out, uh, San Diego was out. And then I was like, well, you know, my hometown never let me down before. So. And lo and behold, the, the orange was sweeter in California than in Florida. Well, you know, I... Coast, yes. Yeah, well, you know, I kind of went into this match i didn't necessarily think the rowdies were going to slaughter orange county and i wouldn't say that i thought orange county was like the clear favorite i mean clearly you're going to the rowdy stadium we've seen them score goals and you know they obviously have a good track record with getting to uh the postseason and getting deep in it um you know obviously i took a different route in how i watched the match as as you know, and as I kind of uh, published on Twitter, you know, I went into this as kind of like a a thirst competition. I figured that I would try to find two orange juices that represented um, the the states. And of course, you know, growing up in California and always drinking the Sunny D, and then when California style came out. Mm-hmm. It, it brought a memory back to me that I was like, you know, I'm going to find California style Sunny D and then I'm going to buy regular tangy original Florida style. And then I'm going to have a juice match. And it was really just juice to start with. I, I was just going to be drinking a lot of orange juice. Right. But then the day of the match, as I put in my Walmart order, I got two jugs of Florida style because apparently they didn't have Cali style. So I didn't feel like, I, well, I tried to hunt down Cali style, almost found it. it. It walked out in someone else's cart. So the next best thing, which I don't know if this really was the next best thing, but I basically was like, well, I've got absolute vodka at home and I've got two jugs of Florida style orange juice. So could I possibly just maybe designate one as straight vodka and the other one as a mixture of vodka and orange juice? And so that's kind of what I did. And I thought, well, I could make... I can make Tampa Bay vodka and I can make Orange County orange juice. But I honestly did go, you know what? If Tampa Bay scores six goals, like I'm going to probably be like turned up. So I was like, I'm definitely not going to, I definitely could not. Let me quote, let me quote Princess Bride for a moment. I could surely not drink the cup in front of you. I would have to drink the cup in front of me, but you must have known. So anyways, 
I just could not make Tampa Bay vodka. Like that was just not going to happen. So I was like, I'll make Orange County vodka and then I'll make Tampa Bay half and half. So that way, if Tampa Bay does go on an onslaught, <laughs> I wouldn't be as drunk, right? Basically, as well as what I was getting down to. So, so what you were saying is that you were thinking Camp Tampa Bay was gonna. I thought if things didn't happen, right? If the if the story, if the Cinderella team, if the story, if the glass slipper did not fit, mm-hmm. that I would not be as turned up. I would not be, you know, uh, given away to 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 the beverage. Um, but lo and behold, like things obviously went south quick because Orange County scored three goals. And the third shot of vodka, I will say, and I, this is obviously not a podcast to promote vodka, but I will say by the third one, I was like, oh, my gosh, please stop scoring. Like, don't score any more goals. Tampa Bay, figure it out. Let's go to shootouts. Um, so my reaction is, whoa, dude, uh, Orange County came in there and they really proved a lot of people wrong. Um, they did. They really did. You know, we know midseason things were falling apart. They let go of their coach. Chris Weehan, obviously with Orange County at the time, came back to New Mexico, you know, and, and, you know, you always speculate when players leave teams and then things happen for that team. And you're like, you know, I wonder what a person thought. And I still do have that thought. So eventually I'll eventually get to have that conversation with him. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering how he's feeling knowing that he, he came back and you know where Orange County ended up versus United. Well, we do. I we do know that he was at the game between San Antonio and Orange County, mm-hmm. uh, cheering on his former teammates, and I believe he was definitely happy for them. You know, so I think I think you can kind of ascertain that that is essentially maybe his his still his thoughts as they win it. You know, the the well, good I mean, guys get the win. It's like, you know, if, as, as anybody, if anybody who's listening, if you're from Orange County, you you know that even if you do go away, it's still always in your blood and it's and it's your hometown. So um, even though he's not there, I'm sh- very sure that it's still in his, um, you know, the OC is just your your hood, you know. <laughs> there is definitely hometown. no one from Orange County listening to this podcast unless it would be Andy King or the producer of Orange Orange and Black Soccer Cast or Logan, who we've since complimented. But you never know. We might pull pull him in by just giving him a, a, a shout out. Um yeah, so Orange County wins it. Um you know, I think the most remarkable thing about it, to be honest, is that no number one team won the cup this year. And um, essentially Orange County, you know, like I said, came from a different spot. They were able to travel the ranks and, and secure the win. So that's huge. And, you know, and, and that ultimately is my biggest like takeaway or my reaction from that match is like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a team can have a crazy season and still come out, uh, you know, in like a good position. I mean, look at Oakland. So. Yeah, because I mean they they didn't necessarily start off the season too great. Orange County, and yeah, actually Oakland's another team with their inaugural season. Like nobody thought they were going to get as far as they did, and they definitely had a rough beginning as well. 
and yet look at how far they advanced. Meanwhile, the teams that we really thought were like a shoe in for the top two, um, they they got annihilated. And it was actually pretty cool because I think we needed to see that breaking of the what has been the um, quote unquote like standard of of what teams are considered good. You know? Yeah, that's a good call. Um, so kind of moving on to something else, uh, another kind of a quick hitter here is, uh, so during the cup final and the halftime or at halftime, uh, USL president came out, Jake Edwards came out, he had a little interview sesh with Sarah Gordon and, you know, obviously Amanda Vandervoort and, uh, they were talking a little bit, Jake mentioned, uh, pro rel and, you know, a little bit. And obviously, it sparked the chatter of about pro promotion relegation uh, for the USL again because you know back in uh, say what back in July or I believe that's yeah in July uh, the Athletic had wrote an article uh, that had come out talking about uh, the topic of promotion relegation, talking about possible calendar change for the USL, and these things were supposed to obviously go uh, to a vote in December. Um, now, obviously it's December now. And, you know, just from, just from what, like I've heard from other sources, essentially that they're talking that there's still kind of a continued discussion, um, rather than a vote going on. Um, and I mean, my own speculation is that like the reason they're probably still talking about it is because maybe not everyone's sold on it. Maybe there's, maybe there's more things that they have to kind of determine, about it or to get more people sold or get on the, on, on the boat. Maybe the, the vote is, is still too soon. Um, that's just kind of my speculation on it, but essentially what's going on is like, um, essentially what's going on is like the fact that USL championship and league one, um, would be in like sort of a promotion relegation system. This meaning that, you know, maybe the the teams that were in the or that were with the worst record from the championship would go down to league one and the teams with the best record in league one would go up to championship so as the the model very close to like the uh european uh system if you will and so this has sparked a lot of chatter because i mean a lot of people want this you know because a lot of folks are fans of the prem you know and and championship and you know, as far as the European um, soccer is concerned. And so, you know, we're thinking like this would be, they're thinking this would be a great thing, you know, uh, to switch, to switch that. Um, it, it, it's such a huge conversation um, because the biggest thing about it is that it would ultimately allow the USL to come from with, with come from behind the MLS shadow and kind of have its own identity, one more akin to like the European um, soccer system. And so, you know, to me, my own take on that is like, yeah, I mean, that is good from the standpoint that it would probably provide uh, more attractiveness for those that are kind of just really stuck on that system. You know, maybe it allows um, those in in the European um, viewership to kind of consider watching some of the USL because it would align. It wouldn't seem the way American soccer seems. Um, the other thing was 
they were really looking at uh, switching the calendar from the spring to fall model that MLS follows going to more of the fall to spring model, which again, AKA the European calendar. Mm -hmm. I mean, about the calendar, it just really aligns the off season of USL to that of the European calendar. Um, And so that pretty much allows the buyers to have a share in the stake at attracting some of the names uh, in other competitions because they'll have to be, because what happens is when the European off season happens, we're midway through a season. So essentially you're the American season. So which what happens is we can't, we're not like a buyer for any of those players, right? Because we're midway through. So what would happen is we would get someone who either just finished another competition or who finished a season out in Europe or, you know, or we were midway in a campaign and we would hope that they were still kind of in a shape, a competitive shape. So by switching the calendar to the European calendar, what happens is we both finish our competitions at the same time. We are both buyers in the same market for those players and vice versa. And it allows players to essentially, you know, say we wanted to sign a player from, from, from England, we could, because they would basically sign, they would have time for their off season. They would come do preseason, get into shape and be able to play the actual season. So it's attractive in that regard. Um, but of course, you know, I had to, I had to, you know, wrap my mind around it. I took it like this though. I said, look, it frankly sounds like loving Pepsi all your life and switching to Coke after you've leveled up and realized that one just tastes better. Now I haven't leveled up. I still buy both. And while the USL wants to differentiate itself from the MLS by doing this, it just seems like more soccer for the fans who weren't already watching the USL. Now, why would you do a thing like that? Right. But let's talk about Rubio Rubin played for San Diego loyal, totally kills it. Right. Goes to RSL and the folks in the folks in MLS are stoked. The people who watched RSL are stoked, but Hey, he was in the USL before, but you slept on that league. So to me, I think that, you know, by the USL kind of switching out, being a little bit different than the MLS, I think it takes away that sort of minor league tag that the USL gets whenever it's described, you know, as a league. It's always like, oh, it's kind of the minor league to Major League Soccer. But this would definitely change it, you know. And so I think that, again, like, that's pretty much what I took away from it. Um, mm-hmm. So, Kind of moving on. Um, Veronica, why don't you tell us about anything going on with the Super League um, and W League? Okay, so um, pretty much the the um, W League pretty much began in May of 2022. I was just reading about the opportunities that are coming for us women, not just as, you know, athletes, but also in all branches of you know, sportsmanship, right? Um, a lot of doors will be open to a lot of women. I understand that there's about 40,000 collegiate players um, that will now have the opportunity to have a professional career um, in the up and coming season. Um, back in 2010, you know, uh, it, the league became under new ownership. Um, fast forward to June of 2019, um, USL indicated its uh, interest in a women's league. They initiated club commitments for 
the pre-professional league. Uh, fast forwarding all the way now to 2021, um, where they, um, two months ago, they um, announced its first president of the USL Super League, um, Amanda Vandervoort. As of right now, I believe there's 30 clubs. And um, in, I believe, 2023, um, it'll also launch the USL Super League, um, which is coming pretty fast. Um, I just kind of wanted to go over a little bit of who um, Amanda Vandervoort is. Um, just kind of like to introduce her to, you know, um, people that may not know. I certainly am learning a whole lot about her. Um, so, um, you know, she pretty much, um, she was the chief women's football officer of FIFA Pro uh, Global Players Association, where she directed strategy, policy, and stakeholders relations. Um, she was a prominent spokesperson in global women's football matters, you know, long before. Um, she's from uh, Arizona. She actually played for the University of Wyoming and later became the head coach of New York University's women's soccer program. She did that for about four years. Um, and then she got her U.S. Soccer B coaching license and um, kind of upped her career from that. Um, she has quoted to be saying that it's such an exciting, as she said, it's such an exciting privilege to be in this position. Vandevoort said together, we can build a competitive environment for elite women players, coaches and referees at the professional level. We will create opportunities for fans to experience the women's game in their local communities and provide value to those invested in this high growth platform. I am excited to be helping the USL realize the Super League's potential and drive and to drive the women's game forward. So it's pretty awesome because it's the first of its kind, um, you know, where as a woman, you will be completely not just encouraged to grow, but protected within, you know, a safe environment. Um, you know, soccer and sports is mainly a male dominated environment, but now um, we're going to be able to make some headways and create like a, a different universe of, you know, um, soccer for us as women. So. Yeah, and, and the really cool thing about that, I mean, just to kind of touch on something you said at the top about the 40,000 collegiate athletes is that um, when you look at the NWSL, they really only have like four rounds, uh, four rounds of drafts, you know, for the draft. And so you, you only see, the, uh, what is it? like 36 to 40 players drafted every year. So, mm -hmm. but some 250 of the top collegiate players who are eligible for the draft submit their names. And so only like a fifth of that even gets drafted. And then you have, you have the WPSL and the UWS as other semi-pro leagues for players to get drafted to, but it's not professional, right? So they don't get paid. Mm -hmm. Um, so for the usl to have these two leagues uh, which you've mentioned uh, super league and w league which is great is it ultimately creates more opportunity right because with that forty thousand, that's a lot of 
a lot of collegiate players that don't have to just fall back on, well, I guess I'm going to go be a dentist or I'm going to go, you know, do law. Like they can now consider another professional league that they can strive for. So potentially would keep a lot more of that talent um, abounding Mm -hmm. in these, in these leagues. So very cool with that. And I know, like I said, she just kind of continued that message during the cup final, um, you know, and, and the one thing that she said that I want to definitely like stress or hone in on for, for this podcast is she said, we're not starting from scratch. We've already got, we've already got this fan base that's already behind um, the soccer community as it be. And there there's already a good structure in place for the USL for these leagues to fall in. So there's already resources and that is what is probably going to help propel um, these leagues because in some sense, it could seem like, it could seem like, like they can twin it a little bit, but it could still be very unique for a women's league, you know? And so that, that sort of, that sort of equity can exist that, that they can arrive to the same destination, but if they need more things or if it needs to be a certain way, it can be. And that that's the, that's the benefit of it. Um, well, I'm going to give, I'm going to give a shout out. We got some New Mexico United adjacent news, right? The part of the, part of the universe of New Mexico United Academy signing Saul Aaron Cisneros just signed with the United uh, New Mexico United Academy. Now I know we don't really get to hear a whole lot about New Mexico United Academy. I know we haven't really got to talk a whole lot about Academy on this podcast. Sometimes, you know, it's really hard to follow up with what's going on because they might have a match like tomorrow. It's just, you know, it's really hard to to track that with everything going on in a season. Um, you know, one of the things their matches either, right? Right. Their matches are not streamed. So so, mm-hmm. so most of the time, if you're getting an update, it's a live tweet on Twitter. Um so that being said, I just want to talk a little bit about about Mr. Cisneros, kind of give him a little little shout on the pod. And just also say that we would look to probably do some additional coverage on Academy going forward. Uh, I think we figured out a way to, to kind of get a little bit more. We'll talk about that as the time comes, but Saul Aaron Cisneros. Okay. He plays, he plays as a forward today. In fact, he was playing with the team. Uh, his favorite team is real Madrid as favorite players. Neymar. But what I really wanted to know, what, what was his favorite music? What does he do in his downtime? You know, some of these guys, they play a lot of Fortnite Fortnite on the internet. But what we do know is you better call Saul. So that being said, today, New Mexico United Academy kicked off the, the USL playoffs. Only eight teams are playing in this tournament, if you will, this, this, this playoffs for the USL Academy Cup. So New Mexico United Academy, or as I like to call them, Chili's United, which have you seen the cool Chili's jersey? I think it's rad. I thought it was cool. 
in my mind, that's why I'm calling him Chili's United. A retro callback to the New Mexico Chili's USL team that we had here uh, in New Mexico some 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I did recently have to buy another scarf because I did do a scarf trade with a friend of mine, a new friend of mine, rather, uh, in the Chavos, Chavos de Loyal supporters group of San Diego Loyal. He liked the scarf. He liked it. We, we we did a trade. And then I got back here and I thought, man, I hope that scarf isn't sold out. And surely not. It's not. I bought another one and I'm sure the U.S. Yeah. I'm sure the United Star wants me to uh, come and pick it up. So got to do that soon. Um, but cracking into these USL playoffs, United being one of the eight teams, uh, they're in the group A with Queensboro FC. Uh, Weston Academy and Su- Southern Soccer Academy. And so this these playoffs kicked off today. They're running between December 2nd, which is today as we're recording this, and uh, the 5th of December. And so um, so basically the way the way things are working with these playoffs, the format for the playoffs is that the teams uh, the teams in each group will get three group play matches and one final or placement game based on the group play standings. All the teams will play one match on the final day of the 2021 USL Academy League playoffs. Um, Now, looking a little deeper into that, they're all currently playing at Water Sportsplex, field one or two, and they're playing these matches concurrently with each other. But when you get down to the final match, the final day, there's going to be like all, like I said, all teams are going to play in a match, but the difference is the two teams or the four teams, the ones that are playing for the cup and probably the ones that are playing for third and fourth, are playing at Al Lang Stadium, which is Tampa Bay Rowdy Stadium. But the other four teams that are playing placement matches uh, will be playing at Water Sportsplex. That is kind of the way I'm seeing it currently, based on the USL Academy site. It doesn't necessarily state like what matches will be where, but I'm thinking if I'm playing for third and fourth place, ultimately playing for third place, that I'd be playing at Al Lang too. So that's what I would hope for. Um, but let me break into some of the results. United uh, played this early this morning. Um, they were neck and neck with Queensboro FC Academy, nil uh, nil through the half, but. Queensboro FC found two scores in both the 51st and 61st minute and essentially won that match. Whereas Southern Soccer Academy and Western Academy played, Weston won um, their match 2-1. So obviously it's really hard to follow without with a lot of steam, a lot of stream behind it. Um, United's next two matches, which the club has kind of dubbed as more of a must-win, they play Southern Soccer Academy on the third of December. They play Weston Academy on the fourth of the fourth of December. I think to really muck things up, Weston and, and and Queensboro FC play tomorrow. So only one team will be undefeated after Friday. And so to me, if I just lost to Queensboro FC, I'd probably want them to lose tomorrow and hope that Weston is beatable by the final day. But, 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 United must beat Southern first. So the other group of four teams, Charlotte Independence, 
uh, played um, AC Connecticut, uh, San Antonio FC, and Indy 11. So those are the other four teams in Group B. Now, their results, Charlotte Independence won 4-3 to three over AC Connecticut. High-scoring game, uh, San Antonio FC Academy lost 1-2 to two to Indy 11. So different kind of situation because in Group A, the two teams who won today play each other tomorrow. So that kind of makes things – that makes that match kind of big for the moment. But still, the teams in Group A can kind of mix it up and a lot of teams could probably come out in two and one. Whereas in Group B, Indy and Charlotte, both teams that won today, don't play each other until day three. So if they win their next two matches, their final day is going to probably seem like a championship between them as they go to play for the final match, which would be the championship, whoever comes out with the better record. So some high scores there. Um you know, it's just too bad that these teams can't play more than three group play matches, that they can't, you know, have a chance to avenge a bad loss or, you know, a sweet victory. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking at right now. So to keep up with more of the USL Academy, you can go to www.usl-academy.com. And then from there, you can just travel the menu and you can see more about the teams that are in it. If you're curious, you can read more about the competition structure, the news that's going on with the Academy. They are doing little breakout articles kind of talking about, you know, some of the accomplishments that the Academy teams uh, have have made and whatnot. So that's kind of what is going on with that. So a couple more things that are adjacent uh, to New Mexico United for now. Um, one thing is we know that at the end of the season for 2021 that Salim Mohammed's loan to New Mexico United ended. So essentially that returned him back to Oakland, which brings Brian Brown, Brian Brown back to New Mexico United. So we don't know the status of that. Like, will we, will Will we see Salim Muhammad again? Will he come back here again? We don't know. Hmm. Maybe potentially he won't. Maybe the deal was as sweet as it was. And we all got to enjoy seeing one of our beloved come back. Um, so then the next thing is the latest first team signing for New Mexico United. <clears throat> Rashid Tete is back. Back again for year four. Right. Is that was that a yay? Did you say yay? That was a complete yay. That was a complete yay. That was a complete yay. I'm happy to oh. see Richie come back. It was a complete it was it was a complete yay. It was like a beignet, right? A beignet. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Uh man, I, I guess I'm a little hungry. But so Rashid Tete is back for year four. Uh, I think this is great. Uh Rashid Tete, easily a fan favorite, really stood up his game. I thought in year three. You consider he was a rookie when he came to the team, sat out most of the year two because he had the injury to his ankle. So that ultimately probably was that was kind of a downer because year one, he essentially won the position to play uh, left center or right center back from Sam Hamilton, you know, and then year two hurt and he's out the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, he's he bounced back in year three, had a really, really tough or really, you know, it's a really tight. Accomplished year, definitely. I would say I mentioned it on Twitter, 
you know, I thought that one of the matches that really stood out to me was the San Diego Loyal match because you really saw him um, show more of his sweeping capabilities. Um, you know, he was like the last line of defense many a times when Alex Tambakis was out of goal. Um, and, you know, he just obviously has more of a wall-like kind of structure when it comes to um, comes to defending. So um, who else is coming back? I wonder. Um, who do you want to come back, Veronica? Anyone? You no, know, I think it'd be really cool if Salim Mohammed got to come back. Like, hey. I mean, yeah, that, that'd just be cool because it, it'd just be like a little more like of that on this end, you know? So, because all it's, the other ones that I want to come back are already coming back. <laughs> it, it's really, you know what it's really like though? It's like, it's like you have a cool set of parents and every night at your house, you get to like sleep in this really cool tent, right? And and make like a pillow fortress and do all these cool things, right? And then you invite your friend over and he gets to experience, or she for that matter, gets to experience the pillow fortresses and the cool castles and all these things, right? Mm-hmm. But, but at the end of the end of the weekend, your friend has to go back to their house and there's no pillow fortresses there and there's no cool castles there in their bedroom. Wow, terrible parents they have. And that is what it's like to see Chris Weehan come back and stay mm-hmm. and Salih Muhammad come back and have to go back home. Have to go back, yep. Yeah, it's like, oh man, he was here for the weekend. Mm-hmm. So we have got through a lot of information this top half of the pod it's just about time for us to go to a break but when we return we'll be joined by the graph grinder himself john morrissey aka usl tactics check me out hey yo hey yo Yo, I'm always on the grind, see it's all for me to relax My uncle hit my line the other day, he had a relapse I try to calm him down while I'm breaking down his weed set Tell him that I love him, hug him and he'll need that Believe that, listen shorty near you to lead that I love to him just like he was a soccer legend Rocket session, not to mention that the plot was destined So stop the questions, we dropping lessons, who got the message? And we're back We're back from the break. And for those of you who are catching the audio version of the podcast at a later time, you've been listening to Cousin Feo. The track was Rude Galit off the album Patat. Almost got that one wrong. Patat. Yeah. So Cousin Feo. You can hear more of his music at CousinFeo.com. And at Bandcamp. And at Bandcamp, that is correct. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, our guest joining us now is John Morrissey. He's got that cool last night, uh, that cool last name. He does. I was like, it went straight to music for me. I was like, he's got that cool last name. It went straight to music, she said. And the charts music. and the charts he puts out are just as cool. John stands up USL tactics. He's one of he's the one that who can tell you how your players or team composition, how your team's competition is really doing statistically from a data standpoint. Yes, we see how they do it on the pitch. It just works hand in hand. John, welcome to the show. What's something that you're excited about this week? 
well excited to be here first and foremost but um yeah smooth one but with the uh league wrapping up this week um i'm kind of just excited to get a little bit of free time back just with less matches to be watching on replay more time to like catch a movie or just watch a random hockey game something like that who are you watching hockey wise uh so unfortunately i'm an arizona coyotes fan you said unfortunately why why would you say unfortunately <laughs> They are tanking very hard. They've got nice relocation rumors. It's the whole nine yards. Ooh. Ooh. Well, yeah. I do understand tanking. I mean, I'm an LA Kings fan, and much of last season was all about, you know, trying to get a good spot in the in the draft again. <laughs> yeah, you've got some good ones, though. Uh, what, Byfield and the like brought in yeah. uh Whatever the uh, center from Montreal, I'm blanking now. Philip Deneau. Yeah, got, got Kopi. Kopi out there. I mean, yeah. Dowdy coming around. So, I mean, some good things. Some good things on the team. Uh, that's cool, man. Hockey. Did yeah, I, I've been. I'm a Mighty Ducks fan. Yeah, she she is a Mighty Ducks fan. So, that's a really hard one for. for they me. are awesome this year. They are. They are. And I don't even like to admit that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, so so John, you mentioned like watching less games, and the one thing I I, I talked to you offline about, um, and I've heard you say this before, but really wanted you to kind of share this one with with the listeners is, so when it comes to watching USO games, obviously you know we all have a different vantage point when we're in the stadium. Some of us in the supporter section, so we just see behind the goal the whole time. Other people like to sit kind of center pitch, so they see you know what's happening from end to end. And, you know, and then, of course, if you're at home, you might be asphyxiated on certain things. But how do you watch matches to be able to take it all in and see everything uh, at a glance? Yeah, so oftentimes um, when I'm watching a match, almost always just on the laptop, going along with whatever angles I'm getting from the broadcast and usually trying to screen record if I'm seeing something of interest. So I think it's more market in the playoffs when I can really just sit down and commit like that full two hour or so stretch to the one match, just try to focus as much as possible on what's going on in terms of what I'm looking for within an actual game. I try to be looking off the ball as much as I can just to see positioning the movement and runs that players are making. Um, defensive shape and the choices that players make in terms of like how they're closing down defensively, what angles they're trying to cut off. So it can be a lot to take in. I think it's really just trying to key in on one certain theme at a time and going from there. So, so it kind of has more of like a, like an indirect kind of feel to it. Like the way teams play indirect, you're already, kind of seeing those moves ahead of time because of the fact that you're watching more of the play off the ball. Yeah, that's the goal, at least, to try and understand how the things that they're doing out of possession or the players who don't have the ball, what the things that the choices they make, how those influence the end game of, hey, say Amanda Moreno has made this streaking run. He's been doing this all day suddenly he connects on one in the channel and you've got that mental context of, okay, I see he's been doing this all night. That's what led to this chance for New Mexico. Okay. That's real interesting. Um, cool. So yeah, that's, that's, I just really wanted to touch on that because 
I remember you saying something about it, and and then I think for the listeners that maybe gives them another vantage point, another way to consider watching the game, you know, to follow along. So I appreciate you sharing your uh, your best your best practice. Of course. So we got you on this episode, and you know, as we, as you kind of mentioned, it's like the off season, and so as we know, the off season that means like roster moves. That means who's going, who's staying, you know, what teams are doing what. And, you know, and, you know, just recently, obviously, New Mexico United, you know, saw Troy Lassane, you know, leave after three seasons. And, of course, the assistant, Zach Prince, come in and assume the head coaching and technical director position. And so uh, we on the show have been trying to speculate what things are probably happening in the camp as of right now. I mean, we know that, you know, player meetings are probably a thing, you know, and what we what we're kind of gathering or maybe assuming or, or plotting here is that maybe head coach or former head coach techn- or technical director Troy Lassane, while mentoring um, assistant coach or then assistant coach Zach Prince, you know, maybe left the duty of player meetings for him as one of his first tasks on taking on the role, right? Because he would need to experience what it's like to be in the hot seat of a player, if you will, right? Like to give them their end of year report card, you know? And I can't imagine that 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 is a comfortable spot because you seem like you can only go a couple ways with that. Um, and, and I thought, prior to like my questions that I'll kind of pose to the three of us, um, I guess, you know, I've talked to former players and it seems like the things that come up at the end of the year, are like this players want security. They want financial gain. They want more playing time or they want to be like positionally realigned. And so I understand, you know, teams exercise the option. And for the listeners, if you're not sure what that is, you know, players sign a contract, maybe they sign one year and it's got an option on it. And so the team essentially can exercise the option to either like basically bring back the player because they want to have them back, you know, or they can also decline to exercise the option because maybe they just don't think the player is a fit, you know, with their system. Or sometimes the team can exercise the option and the player's like, hmm, I want more time and they can say, well, there's a lot of things you need to do or, Hey, we're not, you know, this is kind of still where we see you. And so sometimes a player can still kind of decline to even come back, even though the team wants them back, you know, and that could also lead to other things like more money somewhere else too. Um, So again, further assuming that head coach Troy Lassane left the duties I have a couple of questions for for us. So you're a new coach, you're a new head coach. We know that the relationship has to change, right? Like he was an assistant coach on the team for a long time. Uh, I heard an interview with him yesterday on Coaches Coaches Academy on Sirius XM Sirius XM FC. Um, and essentially, one of the things that was asked of him was like, Hey, you're an assistant coach. Now you're a head coach. 
the player relationship's got to change, right? And he's like, yeah, it totally does. As an assistant coach, I'm more of an influencer, right? He's probably trying to win over the guys in the locker room. But now he's the head coach, so now he's got to make direct decisions. The relationship definitely has got to change, right? Because now, you know, your best bud is now like your boss, right? So that's that's got to be interesting. So here's one question I pose for us. Does Zach tread lightly and cast cast his own cast his own or cast a um how do I put it? Does he tread lightly and cast a net and say, I'm giving everyone a pass because he wants the same pass? Meaning, does he just kind of say, Yo, we want you back and doesn't try to go the hard route? Do you think he he does that in his first year as a coach? I just think given how maybe disappointing and at times blase this team was last year, and given that he does have a lot of that existing chemistry already, he might be in a good position to come off a little bit more harshly and be a little bit more honest and direct with the players. You don't want to pull your punches at this stage of the game, I think, just because you have to set the tone of, listen, I know we were a little bit more buddy-buddy just given the past working relationship, but things are different now and we can still have a really positive sort of dynamic, but at the same time, I'm going to need to be critical in a different way and you're going to need to be more answerable to the things I'm saying. So I think you try to maintain the friendliness in terms of like how you're getting along, but I think innately you have to be as honest and raw as you can in trying to improve the players and be honest with where they're at. I thought another thing that was interesting too is, you know, he, he's been saying a lot about it's about actions, right? Like it's not just talk. We have to actually do it. And, you know, so much so that, you know, in one of the latest interviews, the club, you know, had presented to everyone, he was saying, you know, not only do we have these, you know, other pillars, the hard work, humility and diligence, but now we also have the fourth one, which is actions. And it's like, I thought that was so interesting that he would put in place something that says, hey, we're not just saying it, we're also going to go and do it, you know, because now what you have is you have this new technical director that is for now stating his convictions, right? He's stating like, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to do that, you know, and and I'll tell you what, like my own take is that it sounds very convincing because he doesn't have a deep body of work, right? He's this, he's, but he's been around it. So he's seen it. He knows the beast. It's not like he's speaking highly about something that he hasn't seen as far as a product concerns. Um, so then my, my other thought too, again, is this is, again, this is player meetings. This is this end of the year time is, you know, like, like because he's been around because it seems like, Hey, you know what? Like one for the good guy, you know, we promoted within like, do you, are you led to think that anyone is not going to return because, Oh no, it's another new head coach in this current system. Because a lot of these guys are two year, three year, now four year kind of guys. I think at a certain point, you can have things go stale. And so I think 
part of the challenge for the Prince regime is going to be trying to take the best of what was working with the remnants of the Lysen system and trying to adapt that to something that feels fresh for the players, something that gets them motivated again. At the same time, I do think like there's a need for new blood just to freshen things up with the dynamic, not only in the locker room, but on the pitch as well. I think there's a tendency for a team like New Mexico, who's had a bit of consistency across personnel and across the tactical system that they can sort of be figured out by opponents to a certain extent. So just that continuing wave of change going along with the new manager might be a good thing for all involved. And and that's funny because I, I keep thinking if we're going to see some drastic changes in the roster, you know, if he's going to be that coach, it's just going to clean slate and be those of you with contracts are, are safe. The rest of you, let's let's have some chats. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see um, how exactly he's going to navigate that. I definitely agree that it's it's time to shake things up in United. And um, so it's, it's kind of like it's exciting because we're in the new the new era in a way. You know, so, um, yeah. The other thing we kind of touched on recently, too, is like, uh, you know, my nerd, my nerddom is going to stick out right here. But we've kind of we've kind of touched on like the Star Wars lore, right, a little bit, because like this has this total like master and apprentice kind of vibe to it. Like <laughs> Troy Lassane was he he was very. Uh, how I put it, when he first started, he said that he was, he, he he built the roster from an attack mindset. So like, that's why you saw the freighters, the Santi Moars, like you saw all the prolific players on the team. And, you know, as you probably recall, John, like they scored a lot of goals in their first season, but they also let a lot in too, because the, def- the defense wasn't as regarded as a, a priority for Troy Lassane. But then, like, when I sat down and talked with Troy at the end of the first season prior to any of the signings happening, and we talked a little bit, he said that the mistake that he made was that he went on the attacking prowl, like, too hard. And so he – he that was his mistake. So then, basically, he needed to focus on being more defensive. So then the second season, we saw that happen. We saw players like Andrew Tanari come in, David Najim, we saw we saw him really um we saw him really build like in that in that midfield i would say and you know we saw these players come in and we saw a more defensive team like a team that wasn't allowing as many goals but you know from that came the fact that we weren't probably scoring as many as well too because the team kind of shifted the other way and just totally took a whole different direction and then we're hearing Zach Prince come out and he's like, I'm, I'm really competitive. Like I want to be aggressive on both sides of the ball, but I just really believe that we need to let the players play. So maybe you get the idea that like, you know, some things are going to happen on the pitch. It's not going to be just like, there's going to be some game managers, like obviously like within everything, right. There's going to be some play that just happens like, Hey, like instinct, like, you know, he, he has, been known to say that 
he's looked at the game from a player's perspective still because he obviously he had a longer career and he's played he's had some championships so you kind of get the idea that he might kind of he may seem different than troy because troy played a, a couple of years and then boom immediately took this longer coach's stint so he does he's been long removed from that competitive nature as opposed to zach so like again so we we like to kind of look at the the compare contrast the master and apprentice like the the obi-wans and the the anakins you know what i'm saying and so so i guess my open question to y'all is like zach prince comes in you know he's already talking about taking the team back to like an aggressive standpoint to like actually scoring goals you know we'll get into obviously more like area needs here in a little bit but i mean do you think that do you think having your your mentor of three years who said hey i went attack straight up and then i went defense and then in his third year you know you saw the result you know it was still like we couldn't get any attack but you saw the defense like kind of be strong but not but not as much right because they were still trying to get that attack so it kind of still waffled a little bit but do you think like zach coming in now at this year four seeing this and he's probably resigning a lot of the same product do you think he's going to be able to get something more out of that like do you think he has to scale back and not maybe try to attack it so much and kind of try to maybe still retain the defense and then like do you think it's like one of those situations I don't think that they're necessarily like mutually exclusive things. I think if there's a big takeaway from the run we saw from Orange County, especially in that title game, it's the the base of a good offense can be a really strong defense in that that team would sit back, would draw you forward, crush you on the counter, whether that's a long ball to Adamas or through Eric Avia progressing it. And why couldn't New Mexico sort of adopt a similar style? Obviously, you can be a bit more direct and positive and attacking than Orange County was at times. But there are so many routes that this team could take, and we'll get into some of the players who have been retained so far. But I think overall, they've really retained a lot of flexibility with just the skill sets that are involved. So I do think there is merit to trying to be a brighter, more attacking team. But I think there are a lot of different ways that you could go about that if you are uh, Prince. So Veronica is going to kind of bring us in. Um, let's uh, you're going to talk a little bit or bring us into like player evaluations, as you were saying. <laughs> the beautiful game has so many vantage points as, as and perspectives as can be seen on social media during the season. Chris and I have split up the players by positions to give our takes on the players. John, please weigh in as your input, as you see fit. Okay. Sounds good. So um, we're going to start off with goalkeepers. Okay. Um, United had three goalkeepers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, three goalkeepers. Um, Will Palmquest, and I'm sorry if I pronounced this name completely wrong. Um, newcomer came to us from Denver, Colorado. Unfortunately, didn't get to have any playtime on the pitch so there isn't really unfortunately much much to evaluate um 
with him. We'll be seeing him hopefully next season. Um, then we also have Philip Beagle. Um, he was actually supposed to be the golden goalkeeper as Cody Mizell made his exit. And that actually wasn't what happened. Um, we were very blessed by the great and wonderful Alex Tambakas, who uh, played all basically 31 games, <laughs> um, came to us from North Carolina. He prevented 82 goals from uh, coming into our turf, only conceding 37 the entire season. Uh, you know, I, I had said before, Cody Mizell was my favorite goalkeeper of all time, but uh, <laughs> now Mr. Alex Tambakas, I'm pretty excited to see uh, what's coming next season from this guy, because if you see even like the footage of, of him, what he does to stop uh, goals from, you know, happening, it's uh, pretty remarkable. There's actually a video on YouTube where they do like a full, I think it's 10 minutes of him just blocking, blocking goals from coming in. So, and then um, Chris, you want to continue with our, our defenders and. Yeah, definitely. Um, so defenders, big, big, I think I would say defensively, there's so much going on this year. You know, I mean, one of the things that I kind of looked at was like, I looked at like games played to started, you know, and that was such a, such a drastic difference in the numbers. Right. Cause I mean, previous, previous seasons, you know, for the most part, you kind of knew who was a starter, you know, so you knew who was playing the games, who started the games. Like it was a pretty constant thing. And then as they switched up the systems, then that's where things got a little bit different, right? And then, of course, this particular season, you know, a lot of the guys that were probably more of their mainstays or go-tos, you know, didn't really have as many starts, you know? I mean, you know, one of the things we know on how they pick their roster lineups is they say it's like the training is competitive and that's how they pick their 18. But, you know, sometimes I kind of feel like it might have been some of that. But other times it's like, man, like there are some obvious people that maybe should have got more time. So um, my evaluation, uh, Austin Yearwood, I think he leveled up uh, in year three. I think he leveled up. I think that, you know, he really saw his number called last season. You know, it was a bit, it was, he was a big deal last season. And so, you know, ultimately this year showed more of the same, um, you know, his speed and defensive prowess really showed us more. And you knew that because when teams like Colorado Springs switchbacks had Haji Berry playing on the left side, Troy was good about switching up Austin Yearwood within the shape to kind of cover anyone who had the pace. He was really good about moving Yearwood into the midfield if he needed to, whenever he brought maybe players with slower pace onto the pitch. Like if you think about times that Justin Schmidt came on, Yearwood was at least still on the pitch at times, or they just shifted players around. So you knew that Yearwood basically leveled up. And, I mean, we know he got the team's defensive MBC, uh, defensive uh, player of the year. I think that that definitely is warranted. Um, so that that's my take on, on Yostin Yearwood. Caitlin Ryden continued to show us, I think, why he's one of the best center backs in the league. Early in the season, we definitely saw probably more of a, a super Caitlin Ryden. I think we saw – his ability and his um, to know where the where the ball is and know where the game is headed. We saw some of his, I think we saw a lot of his um, uncanny ability, right, to kind of do everything he could to stop goals from going in, 
there was a stint where obviously he was injured and that was different for the team because they had to really rely on, you know, the efforts of Sam Hamilton and Rishi Tete and Austin Yearwood to try to round out the back three at times. Um, but he recovered and he gave us more and that, that was what it was about. But what, what were the thing that I, I like there is, is just that we went from bringing in someone like Kalen Ryden, where he was like just the only like, shiny star in the back. And then eventually we saw Yearwood really like become a force. And then we still had that issue. If you remember where, when Matt, when Manny Padilla was released, we didn't really have a secured right right back. So we had Troy Lassane kind of going to his his factory, right, and making or manufacturing players in the position so he could shift and have more depth. We saw Salim Muhammad playing as a center back when he clearly wasn't a center back. We saw Daniel Bruce playing as a right back against the likes of Omar Salgado, which complete size mismatch, but you know, Daniel Bruce was up for it. And so that's what we saw. Um, Rashid Tete, which we've already mentioned in this podcast once, but, you know, he had, a, he had a year defensively. You know, I'm quite surprised that he's back this year uh, because I saw his worth rise. I saw I saw how much his skill has developed in this level of competition over three years. The only spells that I thought he had is that I think opponents took advantage of his pace. I feel like you saw that kind of happen if you look to the loose city match um, where all three goals that came in from loose city came in on his side of the pitch. Every single one came in from the left side and they really just challenged the fact that the mobility wasn't, you know, the same because they never really tried to, to come in. Well, they did try to come in on Yearwood side, but because he was such a defender, you know, he was able to kind of hop in some of those things and kind of stop them. Now, I just want to stop for a minute and just kind of touch on the fact that I've talked about Austin Yearwood, Kalen Ryden, and Rashid Tete, and just say, like, that's essentially a wall right there. That's essentially three bricks that form, like, a foundational wall. Like, that is one layer of defense right there. And I think that with all three players now kind of coming into their own and recognizing their ability and, like, having the time to shine, like, that really made like a difference for for New Mexico United. Um what what are your guys' takes on that? Yeah, I mean I think when you're trying to consider some of the better defensive units in the league, that trio is certainly up there with the best of them. Um when I put together my sort of end of uh year team of the season, Austin Yearwood had to be in it for me. I thought he was immense for this side. Um you had mentioned like the recovery speed he has and the when he's coming up against someone like Aji Berry, I think he's um, really talented on the ball as well. And ditto for Ryden, uh, rather. I'm a little bit more dubious about Tete. I think there are moments where he can get lost positionally in comparison to the other two. That said, I do think he is solid overall, and the numbers back that up pretty well in terms of like the goals of replacement, the defensive actions, that sort of thing. But I think that when this team struggled, it wasn't because of the defense. And so if you're returning two thirds of that core already, at least that's certainly not a bad trend to be starting with in terms of the roster construction. 
Yeah, I definitely think that that's like a trifecta that we could have for next season, for sure. If they if they decide to to keep it as such, you know. You always wonder though, like you always wonder when you see a team signing so many players, right? Like as I as I interrupt this for a minute, you part of it's like, okay, well if that's good, let's definitely bring that back, right? But the other half of it's like. Do we really want to sign 80% of the team again? Because like that's gonna leave very little for us to really bring in that's brand new, like as what John was kind of alluding to in the previous segment, you know. And so you so you, you as a, I think from a fan's perspective, you know, obviously you want to see your favorite players come back because that's what you want to do. But then when you're like, okay, but wait, strategically, is that the thing? Right. We've heard other coaches talk about I'm going to bring back 50 percent of the team and dump the other half. So it's like, you know, you just you don't the perfect mixture isn't known quite yet because we're in a we're in a we're seeing another person come behind a person and, you know, and and kind of will he see the players the same way. So as I continue, Josh Suggs, he played a different role this year. Right. Still in the winger position. You know, he didn't start. He started like. 24 of 31 matches, so to say. But the thing that was interesting is that, like, in the 3-5-2 system, like, he was a little different than the 3-4-3, right? Like, the 3-5-2, when it was set up, it was like, you saw, like, many instances where he made runs up the left side of the pitch, but because of how the game was played, a lot of the action was coming off of the right side of the pitch. There was a lot of times where, he wasn't seen or passes weren't made to him. And the times that really he was more effective for himself was when he just took the ball up the side of the, of the pitch himself. When he brought it up the left side, you know, he looked for, he looked for guys, you know, he sent the ball in. I mean, those were the times, you know, but there are just those moments. I, get, I think when I was watching the games, I was like, man, he just, he's, he, there were times when he took the team on his shoulders and he's like, this is why I'm, I think this is why he wears the C, right? But then there are other times when I was like, man, like, I wonder if when a player is like the main guy and then all of a sudden he's starting a good amount of, or he's not starting certain games, and you're like, man, this guy's got to come off the bench and be that guy. Like, that can kind of change the way players are effective in games. You know what I mean? Because they're not, they're still shaking off the fact maybe that like, they're like, not starting you know what i mean like it that can it, it just changed some things so i i think that like i think that we didn't really see him maybe we saw him in moments but i feel like there are times that he was coming out was because troy actually went out and got the right pieces right like he he signed some wingers like he brought in harry swartz and you know he maximized on daniel bruce a little bit more you know and i mean you saw cello like we went like midfield happy like in the, in the off season and we brought in players for the system so you i felt like you didn't really see that once left back established as like you know now a winger you know playing up the side as much and so so that was kind of my my, my vibe for for Suggs. but i felt like he did come into his own at times i did feel like there were times when he went super Suggs. You know, later in the season when he, you know, was like, okay, I got to take the ball to myself, you know, and he created some opportunities for himself, you know, scored a goal. And so, and then went for that humongous, like 
like somersault or that cartwheel to the backflip, you know? And it's like, all right, guy, I didn't know you had the celebration in you. And he didn't know it. He said that he needed to make sure he still had it too. And, uh, and he had it. And that was, that was amazing. Justin Smith. All right. Like I've always like, this one has been hard for me through the seasons because the first season he did play a lot of time, but there were some real critical moments. I thought when Schmidt was in where goals were scored and, you know, the only, his only kind of like line of defense at times was the bad foul, the dog. So, right. And so that created some penalty shots, you know, definitely in that first season, you know, and, and if you look back to the first match before COVID set in in Austin, I mean, that game was essentially nil nil until a bad foul that Schmidt committed right there in the box set up, you know, Austin to go one nil and win the game. So I think that his thing to me has always been the pace. I wondered about it. I was like, okay, what is what when last year when Troy went into like a three three a three four three, his ideal was to have three center backs back there. It was to have Schmidt, Tete, and Ryden running the back. But of course, Tete gets hurt, Schmidt gets hurt, is out the whole year. So a whole different thing happened, right? This year, three five twos back, you know, you know Ryden is gonna play where he's playing. Yearwood secured his spot. So what did that mean? That meant that Tete and Schmidt were battling it out, basically, right? So, I mean, Hamilton gets in there, gets hurt. Tete finishes it out. Schmidt comes in. You know, he only started nine matches. You know, that's kind of a drastic downturn for a guy who was, like, one of the mainstays. And, you know, and I just think that, like, with him, like, you know, he he shows speed when he's running like the shorter things, you know, like I think we would always say when we watched him, he'd come in there, he'd charge on the field. We're like, slow down. Right. Cause that might be all of the juice that you got, you know, but like I said, he, he offers size and he offers like physicality, but you know, teams took advantage of like, okay, who's the guy I can break the line on. So for me, that was kind of my evaluation of Schmidt. Like, do I, I don't know necessarily like, how you take someone like that and go, okay, Hey, we're going to bring you back. Like, do you consider maybe he's a midfielder, right? Maybe, maybe they need to change like how much he's running, you know, maybe that's that. I don't know. But to me, that always stands out to me, you know, and, and I'm, that was one of the things that stuck out to me. Now, Alex Touche, um, a rookie on the team, barely saw the pitch. I thought that was a mistake personally. Rookies seem to kind of come and, and die on New Mexico United. It's, it's, I'm sad to say, but I mean, I look at the first year. I mean, you know, the only reason why, uh, uh, what I, I'm, I'm, I'm somehow missing his first name, but Madden. Okay, Tommy Madden. That's there you go, Tommy Madden. Tommy Madden got some time because Josh Suggs was hurt, so Tommy Madden had to play left back at times, right? But he was mainly a, he was mainly like a um, midfielder, you know. And so he saw some time, but I mean, after a while, he didn't see any time, you know, other than the times that the team needed to put these other players in because of open cup competitions. But we've had these different rookies on the team that just really haven't seen a lot of minutes, you know. And so Alex Tush gets signed. You know, I got a chance to really see him play for Albuquerque Soul for the old uh, USL2 team that we had here. And it was like, 
he's a player that is almost like Kalen Ryan 2.0, right? Like Alex Touche is like an end-to-end type player. You know, you know, he's someone that you can send up, you know, to play and offer as another offensive threat. You know, and we saw him a couple times. You know, he did come in. You know, he did sub in, and and show kind of that very thing. And you know, I was just a little disappointed that we didn't see more of him on the pitch because I think that once when Hamilton got hurt, maybe he was a go-to. Like Touche would have been someone that you could have you could have used there. And in the times that they just like I said, barely brought him in when it was like all all was lost. Like you know, they brought in all the defensive subs, and you know, he's just someone who can kind of do both along with Ryden. So that brings me to David Najum. You know, the team was in a signing frenzy this season. John, you know it. There was a point when United was like, "Oh my God, we're not scoring any goals. It's really hard. We need a, we need something." And then all of a sudden, that's when we saw, boom, like Tanari, boom, Najum, boom, Chris Weehan, boom, Salim Muhammad. It was like, I think everyone was like, "We're finally gonna see Freighter come back," because it was like they went on a complete frenzy, something that we hadn't seen in the previous seasons. We hadn't seen Troy add to the roster mid mid season. You know, he just stuck to his guns. He's like, look, these guys got to get it done. But this time he went back to the guys who knew the system. And so Najem was a good pickup, you know, started 11 to 14 games that he played, you know, he's injured for a little bit. Um, but the thing we like about Najem is like his possession. I mean, the guy's got a good, ball handling ability the guy's able to put it in the box he's able to take it up like he offered another dynamic to the team we really saw that in his first year with us so to see him come back uh ultimately was good um sam hamilton that is is the last one tough break for him played 10 matches right started 10 10 of the 11. you know he brought a defensive game to the pitch you know i mean i talked a little bit about him just like a moments ago, like, I mean, him and Tete essentially battled out for that, that center back position. And ultimately Hamilton was better in the midfielder position. Um, but this year he was playing that, that back position, you know, and he was doing well, you know, and the only thing I thought though, was whenever New Mexico played Colorado Springs, like he just had a tendency to kind of play up too high. And you would see, him play up too high countless times and someone like Haji Barry or Ingolina would just come through and just blast the line and he just couldn't get back. And I mean, I think up until the injury, that was kind of the thing too, is like in that game, he was played as a midfielder, right? So Troy knew, Hey, this guy plays up. He's really defensive, but he can't get back. So I'll put, I'll put Tete behind him. Right. So that's what we saw. So Hamilton was good up until that point of when he got broke off. And then that was it. And so it sucks because he didn't get to play the majority of the season. He was missed. You know, it could have been an option perhaps, but that's kind of my wrap up of Hamilton. So um, I don't know. You, what are you guys kind of thoughts? I know I kind of went through those, but without a break, but what do you have any, any touch on any of those players there? Yeah, I think, um, the one that stuck out to me was Hamilton, just because I was so high on him in sort of previous stints. I think what you're saying about maybe the changed role going forward, if he does come back, is something that uh, should be examined for this team. 
Um, I think that's just a really wise use of him, especially given a lot of the depth that you have at that position and the possibility of a more permanent system change to a four at the back, possibly. Um, on uh, Najem as well, he really was an impact player coming in late on in the season. You hit the nail on the head that um, they really needed something offensively, and I think he was a big boost for a pretty important stretch of the season. So those are the two in the latter half of the discussion that really kind of stood out as maybe people you would consider bringing back, but we'll see. No midfielders, we had Cello, um, Cello, Chris Weehan, Michael Zira, Andrew Tenari, Juan Guzman, Sergio Rivas, Daniel Bruce, Harry Schwartz, and Salim Mohammed. Um, so pretty much with um, Cello, uh, he kind of uh, pretty much like you know his biggest um, his biggest uh, uh, thing that brought him. Uh, a little more to the limelight was his uh, his one lone score uh, against the uh, real monarchs um, that gave us that one and0 um, goal which actually got us the, the win for that that match um, Chris Weehan you know had left us uh, this last season and then came back to us um, ended up scoring 14 goals for our team. Um, Michael Azira, also uh, new to our United um, team. Uh, I would like to see a little more of him on the pitch. He did end up getting called to um, his national team in Uganda. Um, and then, uh, Chris, do you want to take it over with um, Andrew Tenari? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, Andrew Tenari, you know, Troy has called him his little bulldog, you know, I, it took me a while to really understand Tanari's game, right? I'm not going to lie. Like I, I, you know, the, the, the throwing the ball on the pitch, kicking it out of the way, the, you know, accelerating the game to a point where, you know, everyone's like getting cards. Like that took me a minute. Right. Cause I, I was just like, I don't understand these fouls. I don't understand these, you know, these things he's doing. Right. But, after a while, I started to see it. You know, he's he's an agitator, right? He's he is essentially what in hockey is a enforcer. He is like an agitator in in football, like right? Like he essentially goes into a game. You know, he he gets physical with guys. Probably says things to him. Who knows? You know, and then you know when the game is at a certain point, whether United's up or United's down. You know, he throws like what would be we would see as like a senseless foul in there, you know, and sometimes it's that it's the tactical foul that he lays in just to kind of, you know, rough someone up. And other times, you know, he does things like he gets the ball, he slams it down. He like just, you know, kicks it well out of the pitch. Right. He gets it. Then he gets then he gets that flag or sorry, not flag. He gets that that card. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like that's how the game moves from that point on, you know, and you come, you come to learn, you come to love it, right? Like the fans pretty much guess that he's getting a yellow every game. They're just waiting to see when it comes. And then when he doesn't get one, everyone's disappointed because they're like, wait a minute, this guy like didn't do it this time, you know? And so, uh, so with him, I think what you get is you get grit. 
Um, again, I said physical nature, tenacity, all of that. That's what you get from Tanari. But he did put himself in position to score some goals. I mean, we saw that. You know, he definitely is someone who can get in, in the box. He distributes. He had like a little hand in some assists this year. So definitely maybe saw a part of his game. Um, it was interesting with him because I had Devin Kerr on the podcast back around Easter and we talked a little bit. And one of the things he told me was like Tanari, like, you know, hadn't really been himself in a while. He got injured in, in Tampa Bay and, you know, kind of had some seasons that maybe were below, like maybe what was like his, his best. And, you know, so I thought this past season was probably one of those. He's trying to get back to this, place where he's been because he like i said he was distributing the ball he was coming up on assists you know he was honing in on the game that he he has like i mean we, we got to see a little bit of his his red bulls vibe so um yeah so that's tanari you know with daniel bruce that uh, you know like i said last time that he's definitely want to see a lot more of him he kind of like comes up at the most interesting times um kind of like to help an assistant get some goals in um so you uh, <clears throat> either one would be Salih Mohammed. um he left us for Oakland but then he was loaned back to us for the remainder of this last season definitely a player that that I think would be you know a good assist um for next season so hopefully let's see if we can if we'll have him come back or not um do you, um, who wants to fill us in with uh, Sergio Rivas? Anybody want to ch- chime in on that? Yeah, I'll take, I'll take it. Uh, Sergio Rivas, you know, came to us from Reno. Um, obviously, he's from, from New Mexico. But, like, the thing, the thing with Rivas is that when, we, when he was announced by the club and when he was really kind of, I guess, I don't know, hyped up, if you will, it was the idea that he was like this attacking midfielder. You can obviously come in and, and have plays in on the ball. We did see that earlier in the season. You know, there were those times where Rebus was right there in the box, you know, and I think we saw it towards the latter half. Like he'd just become more of a proponent, sorry, uh, more of a proponent like in, in the attack. And, you know, so Rebus is someone I think I would want to see a little bit more though. Like, He's someone to me who's like kind of in the middle. Like he was a he. I thought he would be kind of more of what Chris Weehan became in his second season. I thought he would just be this attacking midfielder. He would be in on all the goals. You know, he had some of that to do, but um, but I I don't know if it was more of the system because if you saw, there were times where Rivas wasn't the attacking uh, midfielder. He was a holding mid. You know and. You know, so he was being used kind of differently, but I think his natural, his natural like innate like nature, right? Is I just used all these big words. That's ridiculous. Like I think his natural disposition was to go on the attack, but there were times where he needed to stay. And I think what you saw with the midfield was the midfield wasn't always very compact because I think that the communication was off a little bit you know players wanted to play the way they played but they were being used in a different system and they had to practice different restraints and so i think that's a lot of what you saw with with Rivas and 
Um, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on Guzman too while we're talking. Um, Juan Guzman, like, I think, I honestly, I think Juan Guzman and Tanari to me, they're kind of like, they're like, <laughs> they're kind of like, uh, like cookies that have, you know how like cookies have a pair of cookies in a, in a thing, right? It's like, to me, like Tanari and, and Guzman are like, are like, nutter butters right like the cookies are so good you know and they're similar in ways you know they just got their own flavor they do they do kind of the same thing you know guzman his first year you know accelerated was like the passing genius had like probably the best proficiency when it came to passes you know and that's what that was his kind of claim to fame and then you know somewhere in the second or third year he became kind of or the second year he became he became like more of the the guy that Sonari is, like he a little bit more like physical on the pitch, you know, like you know he. That's kind of a little bit of what I saw him do. There was the point later later in the season where it's like when Guzman was coming in the midfield got loose, like Guzman wasn't playing indirectly; he was playing directly, so he wasn't getting, you know. He wasn't at the end of some balls or he was passing to certain folks that weren't on the same team with him, you know, just like turnover central was kind of happening a little bit with Guzman and, you know, but I mean, that theory was kind of, was kind of like broke because there were times that he came in and the game was good. And like, you know, so I think that that sent all the, uh, the naysayers back to the boards on Facebook to try to come up with something else. But I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, Guzman, he's just one of those like vanilla players, you know, like he does, he does what he does well, but the only thing, the only bone of contention I would say I ever had was just like the turnovers at times, like the passes that didn't thread all the way to the other, other member on the team. You know, those were the the things that kind of stood out to me the most. Okay. Awesome. And now we can um, move on up to the forwards. Okay, sounds good. Well, um, John can you can chime in if you. Yeah, John. Yeah, chime in, brother. What you got? Yeah, no, I, I think the point you were making about the role that Rivas played was something that stuck with me, just because, um, to that point, the way he was deployed with Reno was pretty vastly different from what um, you were describing in terms of like that preseason billing of. Here you go. Here's this Wean replacement who can be a really bright attacking midfielder, and it's kind of not what he did in his previous stints. He was much more of a box-to-box type. He had a really wonderful partnership with Kevin Partida, where he would kind of uh, contribute into their sort of new other Reno man-marking defensive style. He'd win the ball back, dribble it upfield, and dump it off. <clears throat> oh, excuse me, cheese. And I think he was sort of stuck either in a role that was more defensive than that, sort of the Guzman holding kind of thing, or tasked with a bit more creation in the final third than you would expect out of him. He's at his best in those transitional sorts of moments, and I don't think he was activated quite enough in those. That said, I do think that in a certain system, he would pair amazingly with the Guzman or Tunari in the middle. So 
that's something I would be watching. Um, and I do want to shout out um, Wien, obviously, as the season wore down, was completely brilliant for this team. I think he struggled to really get comfortable in Orange County, but the return was super good for his game, I thought. I mean, impact player right away. Scored what, like a goal in each match. Um, you know, it turns out to be the team's MVP three years in a row. Like, how do you leave a team, right? How do you leave a team and then come back to a team and then you're the team's MVP because that was the offense pretty much? Like, you know, it was stellar. I mean, the fact that he returns for or returns through 2023, so basically two seasons, like, so to say, like, that right there is crazy. Like, you, you've you got your guy right there, you know. Um, so, yeah, just picking up on the forwards, you know, looking at Devin Sandoval, Brian Brown, Ilya Illich, Amanda Moreno, and Christian Nava. This is this is probably – this is going to be an interesting section right here, okay? So, I mean, Devin Sandoval, you know, Amanda Moreno, probably the ones United could really rely on the most, right? I mean, when it came to the set. Sandoval needed someone to play the ball to him more or less. I think when Chris Weehan left, like I knew that that might have been an issue because Moreno was not a self-starter himself last season, if if we recall. Moreno needed to be kick-started. I mean, there were several times that Weehan fed him the ball. Weehan was always saying um, in pressers, hey, look, you know, just keep after it, keep after it, right? I mean, so in some ways, like Chris Weehan was that sort of on the pitch leader, even though he wasn't wearing the C to really kind of just invigorate like the offense. So this year, I wondered how things would go. Right, Miranda, like I said, he needed a, he needed the ball played to him. He needed to kind of find someone to fire him up. Sandoval, kind of the same thing. You know, as we've already talked about some of the different players. I mean. That's where Cello really was essential because, you know, when Troy brought Cello, he was like, look, I need someone to feed the ball into the box, you know. And and really, I feel like United needed someone like that as soon as they left. They, like I said, when they let go of Manny Padilla, they lost someone who could send crosses into the box very effectively. I mean, they got Kalen Ryden, who can obviously do it, you know, who can send balls down. He's got good sight. But that's what... That was needed. So, I mean, I think that the design was there, but for the most part, it was Sandoval and Moreno. And, of course, Sandoval, I thought, honestly, came out – he came out a little bit more lean this year. He had a little bit more speed to him, you know, and this wasn't because he cut his dreadlocks, you know, contrary to belief. I think he just literally, you know, did some training in the off season, really focused on the things he wanted to focus on. And, obviously, stamina was probably one of them. And endurance and um and so i think you saw that but of course you know there were times when you know i mean i think like the fatigue would set in i mean you could see him dash down a pitch and then see a player who was far, way behind him was like right in front of him and you're like wow okay like that's just it right but Moreno, let's talk about that. So Amanda Moreno played in two competitions this year. He's playing for the El Salvador team, for the national team, and then he's playing for United. You know, and I liken that, honestly, to when United was playing in the Open Cup and playing USL Championship. Mm-hmm. Essentially, he was playing two competitions. I mean, for a guy to be able to start the majority of the matches he played for United before being injured and still, you know, be sitting there getting caps for, like, 
the national team. That was remarkable. You know, where I think I, I, I wanted to see him be more of our, our attack, have more goals on the season. Because I think where we really missed him is we missed him when he went away. I think those were the matches where we really needed him to be there for us. You know, but once we got Weehan, it, it was good, right? Don't get me wrong. But you never we were we we wanted to see Weehan and Moreno in some of those matches that were critical on the schedule. And it was like we had one, but we didn't have the other. And right. so I think we 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 had setbacks because of that. Um Brian Brown and Ilya Illich. Now that's kind of a unique case because you know Brian Brown was scoring a lot of goals. He was the goal. It was like he was holding the record of goals for Arena when he was playing there, and then he went away to FK Partida or they said Partanzi, right? FK Part Partanzi, I believe. I think that's correct in the Albanian. I have no help for you. No, you're good in the Alban in the Albanian league. He went there and uh, he didn't. I think he may have had maybe one or two goals. But the one thing he said was that whole competition was so different. It was tougher. He wanted to come back to the USL where he could kind of find his game again. But he came back. But it's like we didn't really see the Brian Brown of Reno. You know, he, he really wasn't that guy on the pitch for us. You know, and and I I wonder this. I wonder, he didn't really seem to just really seem fit for the climate in New Mexico. He just didn't really seem like the guy with speed. And it he it just really lacked a little bit. There were times that were bright, right? Don't get me wrong. There were times when you saw Brian Brown and Daniel Bruce playing together, doing a little indirect like play with each other. Like That was fun. But he just didn't seem to really like show himself and that really made me think about previous seasons like with Romeo Parks you know premier striker but not used as a striker used more as like a false nine right or even as like a 10 I should say and did a lot more hold up play and so it was kind of like I I I had even reached out to like to freighter during the season said hey like what why isn't brian brown working out like i said you 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 players from jamaica you play a certain way but like it just didn't seem like he really was working out in the system and he he said it just could have been the fact of like maybe the system maybe it was more of just like you know just just different factors like that or even the climate a little bit but you know, I don't, I don't know. So that was kind of a thing for me um, with Brian Brown. And then when he got shipped off to Oakland, I thought, okay, well, maybe his game will get revitalized, right? But he went to Oakland, and it was like he was never in the lineups. Like he maybe only played one time of the rest of the season. So it was like, okay, well, I don't know how good the loan was for Oakland. You know what I mean? Like the loan was good for us for Slee. I mean, right. he, he he started five, played fifteen. But the loan wasn't good for Oakland. So, I mean, like, you know, so that's kind of that's kind of that. Ilya Illich, um, well, one more point for Brian Brown, because I think it was, was it Brian Brown who was breaking the internet? Was that the claim that you, New Mexico yeah, United yeah. <laughs> That, so, yeah. So, 
it wasn't that the internet was broken. It was that Brian Brown was broken, right? As, <laughs> essentially, that's probably what the rest of USL neutrals are saying. But Ilya Illich, the Serbian sniper, we wanted to see this. I just, I think that was another case of like of of the fitness. I mean, I, I don't understand it, but I mean, like. There's got to be something with the climate difference. I mean, I, I, when I think of New Mexico, I think of no humidity. It's dry. That would seem good. Like you're not going to sweat all day like you would in San Antonio. And, you know, like, you know, but I mean, of course, the altitude is the other thing. And, you know, ultimately, I think that altitude really affected him. Yeah. He didn't really look necessarily like maybe the Ilya Illich that they sold us back you know, who played at Lou City, who was part of the two championship teams, you know, and I mean, he went to Indy 11 and he kind of got lost there a little bit from what from what it was. So I think that he kind of had that sort of season that Romeo Parks had, right? Most of the year he was, he kind of struggled, didn't really get as much time. And then when most of the players were injured on the team, Ilya Ilyich had to get some time. Like you were going to see him. And, you know, with Devin Sandoval being out too with the, the blood clot, you had to see Ilya. And so he came up, got a couple of goals. It was like, all right, sweet. Like, this guy's going to finish out the season pretty strong. But, you know, ultimately it's like, okay, well, there's a lot that's got to approve for him, you know. And, you know, I think a lot of it's going to do with maybe some of that fitness. I thought for Lou City, though, I thought I would see lots of Ilya Illich all over that pitch. And I was surprised that we didn't. The substitution for him eventually was good, but I thought we were going to see him get back to a spot that he's familiar with and just kill it. Not the case. Um, lastly, Christian Nava. So we signed an academy kid. Okay. This is this one to me is just kind of different because like I'm, I'm totally a fan of of kids or of, of really of anyone getting to like you know, kind of the whole path to pro thing, I think that's rad, right? I think it's good for someone to be able to, you know, start off at a certain level, then level up, then level up, then level up. We've seen it this year. We saw it with Thomas, you know, obviously playing North Texas, and then boom, here he is playing Orange County. He's a champion back-to-back -back years. Like, he's got accomplishments. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he's got those out the wazoo. And so to see Nava, you know, we just established an academy. We sign the kids. He's the first one to sign to an academy. He's the first one to sign to a pro contract. He signs a pro contract six months after he signs an academy contract. I wondered at first if it was too soon. I wondered how he was going to do, you know, amongst the rest. You know, we had already been seeing El Paso's Diego Luna come out and have a stellar season, scoring goals, becoming almost the team's lead scorer at times, right? Just being super effective. And I thought, could we have that too? But it was kind of a different thing with Christian Nava, you know, and I asked Troy the same at times, like, will he play? Will he get some time? You know, like he's going in, he's going in with 10 minutes left of the game or, you know, 20 minutes. Like it wasn't a lot of time, you know, and I just wonder if, I wonder if, if he could have been more of the player that they've sold to us that he is like in that level of competition with more minutes you know, or if it's just something that, like, hey, he's just going to need more time to kind of grow and establish himself amongst. He's playing with men. Like, you know what I mean? He's like, I mean, most of United's players are like 30 and stuff. So he's playing with men. It is like a pickup game 
you know, is like a pickup game with older dudes. And there's this young guy who's like 17 who's like, hey, can I get next? You know, so I think he's got some time to come. But what are you guys' thoughts? Yeah, I think two things stick out. In terms of Moreno and the use of him, I do think that he's most effective when he's playing off somebody. He's able to pick up the ball with the head of steam behind him on the move, really take advantage of some of the skill set that he brings. And so whether that is a Sandoval mold kind of guy, a hold-up striker, or next to a creator like a Wien, I think that activates him in a way that's more effective than just sticking him on top. And just speaking to the whole Illich thing as an Indy 11 fan, I don't know if it's just getting 230 or when he was with Indy getting close to 30, just given kind of the size and the lumbering style that he had that I almost wonder if physically he's just not up to it in the same way he was in Louisville. But for me, like the past couple of years have been markedly worse in terms of the performance I've seen. So I'd love to see a rebound because he seems like a truly nice guy and he's a pretty high quality striker on his day, but yeah, just lacking that consistency. About Moreno that he definitely is like a good co-pilot, a good co-partner. He can um, get results when he is playing off of, you know, in a way somebody who has created an opportunity. He just, he just knows where, where to go. Um, with Iliac, I believe, wasn't it Troy that had said that? Um, you know, because they were asking when he, I forget which match it was that he was just making some pretty good moves. And we saw that, we saw a little bit of the Siberian sniper come out. And then Troy had indicated that he does it all the time in practice. And um, I forget what match that was for, but, um, you know, I do know that the the altitude and all of that out there is pretty brutal because I've, I've experienced it myself, like where it just knocks you out. Um, but, you know, you do have, uh, he's been out there for quite a minute already. So, um, yeah, it'd be cool to see more of, of that next season. Um, you know, that, that Siberian sniper that we all wanted to see, you know. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, so our next topic uh, is kind of like a by the numbers. And, you know, John, you know, obviously, like we we wanted you to swim in this lane with us tonight, which I think has been great. Um, I've loved your input. And, you know, so we wanted to kind of take a, a closer look, data driven at, at uh, I guess, player development and roster needs. And, um, and I wanted you to touch on player development first. Um, and the namely the two things that I was really like interested in uh was like who did did you see to be the key contributors um by position for united and also um who would you think needs like uh like improvement or where where improvement could could be for certain players yeah so just starting at the back with the defense um i know i'd already heaped some praise on the yearwood i think he was really key he could plug in across that back line He's capable as a fullback in a four-at-the-back system. He can play centrally. Um, I think a lot of the plaudits rightly go to Raiden, but Yearwood, to me, is almost as valuable, if not more so, because of that utility that he brings to the table. Um, I think, as I mentioned, I don't think the defense really was the issue for this side, and 
the statistics really bore that out between the goalkeeper and the defenders in terms of I um, put out that like goals above average model to try and just estimate player value. New Mexico was in the top third of the league at both of those broad position groups. It's not really the biggest area of concern. Um, and the fullback spot within that vein and just moving up the field a little bit, I thought it was equally strong. Suggs, we talked about a bit, but I thought Bruce was completely brilliant, especially down the stretch. He really came into his own in an attacking sense as well. For me, the central midfield was really the area as well as the forward line where things got a little bit dicier. I think talent-wise, the midfield is about as strong as pretty much any in maybe the Western Conference. But at the same time, I think I look at this team with a bit of false confidence. I had them winning the mountain in the preseason, and uh, that did not turn out quite as I predicted. But it's just how do you get these good pieces and arrange them in a way that kind of maximizes their talent and lets them show why they're such special players in the first place. So um, again, talked about like the deployment of Rebus, for example, or how do you get Guzman, Antonari, and Azira their playing time when all three of them are really kind of holding type of midfielders who can progress the ball but don't really excel at that. And then how are you fitting Weehan into this system when you've got a glut of players who do a sort of similar thing. So trying to suss that out, I think would be important going forward. And then as I spoke to on the uh, question of the forward line, I think Moreno is just brilliant. He's one of my favorite players to watch in this league, but he needs to have somebody that he's playing off of. So is that going to be Sandoval in the future? I mean, or do you try to find somebody in that mold? I think there's merit to that. At the same time, he might be able to work well off of a Wii and just a number 10 sort of creator uh, up in the attacking band there. So I think just trying to suss out the balance of things once you get beyond the defense is really going to be the key for this team and developing, uh, getting players in the best positions to let them succeed. Okay. And then, John, can you touch base on roster needs for this coming season? Yeah, so just based off of um, the players that have been retained so far, obviously, I think you're going to need another striker or two in there. Uh, Moreno, obviously, is a fantastic start to the sort of forward group, but you have to supplement. Um, at the back, we've already seen Ryden is back, today is back. If your wood is out the door, those two are certainly more than capable of holding down the fort. And I think they give you a, just a really great spine to build off of. Um, and Bruce as well at the fullback spot. So you've got really a good setup at the back once again. You've got the core contributors of the offense. It's that center midfield for me where who's going to be coming back, if anybody from this uh, unit from the past year. And if no, if none of them come back, how are you rebalancing this? I tend to think that maybe a deep line creator in the vein of like maybe a wall fall that you see for Oakland this past season, something like what you get from Corbin Bone, for example, in Louisville, if these names ring a bell to anybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where you need someone who can help to progress things forward out of that uh, lower spot in the midfield and do so in a way that 
just advances play. I think New Mexico at times has been a little bit too reliant on these longer direct passes, just sort of chance balls into the channel that don't always work out well. So getting someone who can really control the tempo could be important to this team. And I think it's something that by and large they've lacked in the past couple of seasons. So John, like this, I think these questions have been age old ones that seem to like carry from season to season, but like, do you think that we have ever replaced freighter since he left? Not really. To be honest, I, he was such an impactful player for this team. Stylistically, he could do a lot of the things that I've been calling out in terms of that progression, that creativity once you get it into the final third, but also giving you a lot of the two-way impact. Having that sort of do-it-all midfielder is so important. And this team has brought in players who, across the board, when you're considering them as a group, can fill that in. But having one piece who brings you all sorts of different facets is just invaluable, and you can build around that. And I think the absence of Raider has really sort of derailed some of the progress that this side had made. And then the other question is like, so obviously, you know, Santi Moar is doing some things in Phoenix. Uh, is there a player on the current roster or from this previous year's roster that you think maybe like equates to that loss or are we, or is that also something we haven't really filled since he's been gone? I think there is a scenario where you adapt to Moreno's game to maybe play more of that more role, but it wasn't in the cards just given how the forward group um, ended up this season in terms of injuries and lack of performance where he had to play more of that out and out striker role. But I do think in terms of roster building, trying to find that sort of midfielder who he'll put in a defensive shift, but the real key is what he's adding in terms of that creation, in terms of that shot threat, especially where, I mean, you throw Mar out on the wing, he'll be cutting in on you all day, taking shots, creating havoc. And that certainly isn't something that this New Mexico side had but almost by design in terms of the three at the back wing back based style. So I think maybe if you're uh, Prince trying to kind of re-examine where you're going with this team, looking to move to a four at the back system, where you're focusing more on wingers and bringing in someone in the mold of a Moar who can really be the crux of what you're doing offensively would certainly be something that could be effective. Um, you know, we appreciate your input, you know, and, uh, you know, just, yeah. So where can folks find you, uh, on the internet that want to check out more of what you, more of what you offer? Yeah. Just at USL tactics on Twitter. Um, I mean, I post too much over there, honestly, just news, uh, in the off season, it'll be covering all the news in terms of player movement, coaching changes, if I get the itch to go back and watch a random game, I'll be posting about what that could mean in terms of how teams are shaping up for the next season. And sooner rather than later, I'll be launching my preview hub for the upcoming year and all of that on at USL tactics. Soft tease. Love it. Love it. 
Uh, Veronica, why don't you let the listeners know where they can send us messages or tag us on social media? So on Instagram and Twitter, they can find us at Seek and Strike NM. On Facebook and YouTube, it's Seek and Strike um, Collective. Right on. And uh, I want to remind you guys to uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast uh, for our listeners on the audio format. Uh, if you're on Apple, leave us an episode review, even a five-star rate us. Lastly, subscribe and share the podcast. I probably already told you to subscribe, but I'll tell you to subscribe again. Uh, subscribe and share the podcast so that other folks can find the New Mexico United news as well. Uh, for John Morrissey, Veronica Zavala, and myself, Chris Walker, we'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to We Are Seek and Strike podcast, brought to you by the Beautiful Game Network. Find more USL-related podcasts and written content at bgn.fm. To never miss new content, consider subscribing wherever you get your podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Seek and Strike Collective. Lastly, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Roughneck Scarves and Icarus FC. Roughneck Scarves, the official scarf supplier to MLS, USL, and US Soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. Tired of the same old uniforms and cookie cutter templates from Nike and Adidas? Looking for a unique, completely custom kit for your youth club, Sunday league squad, adult or even pro team? Icarus FC can help you create the kit of your dreams at an affordable price. Let them help you design your new custom kit today at IcarusFC.com.